Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. We are excited to give you our 100th episode of the podcast. And likewise, we have for you an interview today that we are excited to have conducted and to get to share with all of you. It's with the author and journalist, Alex Hutchinson. Uh, Alex Hutchinson is based in Toronto. He actually started out as a physicist. He got his PhD from the University of Cambridge, and then he spent a few years as a postdoctoral researcher in the United States with the U.S. National Security Agency, uh, and he worked on quantum computing and nanomechanics. Uh, during that time, he started writing a little bit. Um, he covered technology for popular mechanics. Uh, he earned a National Magazine Award for his energy reporting, um, and then he uh, kind of began this shift over towards focusing on endurance sports. Uh, both in his writing and in his professional life. Now, he had always been a runner, and you're going to hear him talk a little bit about this in the interview, but he competed as a a middle distance and a long distance runner for the Canadian national team, mostly as a miler, but also dabbling a little bit in cross country and even a little bit of mountain running. He mostly writes these days for Outside Magazine and Outside Online. He's a contributing editor, and he writes a a column called Sweat Science. Uh, He writes for the Globe and Mail, where he writes a column called Jockology, uh, and he also writes for Canadian Running Magazine magazine. Uh, Prior to that, he was a runner's world columnist from 2012 to 2017. Uh, His column there was also called Sweat Science. And so if you go back to to that stretch of time between 2012 and 2017, you can find a lot of his work in in runner's world uh, and on runner's world online. Uh, He's written a few books as well. In 2009, he wrote his first book called Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions that Have Transformed Our World. So again, that technology focus. Uh, But then by 2011, he had begun to shift his focus there and he wrote A Practical Guide to the Science of fitness uh, called Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights? Fitness Myths, Training Truths, and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise. Um, His latest book is the one that both Patrick and I have read and that we've talked about and we've relied on a little bit over the course of the past couple of years. It came out in February 2018. It's called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curious Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Uh, And it's talking about that book that we're primarily going to focus on today. So without further ado, uh, with great excitement, I am offering you our interview with author and journalist Alex Hutchinson. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, everyone, and a very, very hearty and heartfelt welcome to Alex Hutchinson. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, We really appreciate you being here. I was thinking before we called you that it's hard for me to, to say how excited we are about having you, but I'm willing to bet that our listeners understand, because if there's three topics we talk about a lot, it's Elliot Kipchoge, The Vaporfly, and Alex Hutchinson. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's that's serious company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it's, it's good to have you here right around uh, episode 100 here, so we'll have to see what we can do about getting The Vaporfly and Elliot Kipchoge on here, but, but yeah. <laughs> Ep- yep. Episode 1,000 and episode 1 million, maybe. <laughs> That's right. There we go. There we go. Although the vaporfly may not bring much personality to the interview. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, don't no understand. comment, no comment, no comment, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, Alex Hutchison, he's a National Magazine Award-winning journalist. Uh, his work appears in Outside and Outside Online, The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, The New Yorker, other publications. Uh, and we should also mention you're a runner. Um, at one time, you competed on the Canadian national team, mostly the middle distance runner, and you've done at least one marathon, which we're going to talk about here uh, towards the end here. Um, but the main thing we're going to focus on here is a, a book that came out in February 2018 that both Patrick and I read and took a lot from called Endure, uh, Mind, Body, and the curious elast- Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Um, 
And so, Alex, I was hoping we could kind of start off with the overall gist of that book um, that you wrote here, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Um, when I was reading it, when I was going back over it, I kind of happened upon page 212. You, you, you sort of sum it all up in almost a single sentence here. It says, How hard it feels dictates in a true and literal sense and with greater accuracy than any physiological measurement yet devised how long you can sustain it. So anything that moves the effort dial in your head up or down will affect your endurance, even if it has no effect on your muscles or your heart or your VO2 max. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, that, the gist there and that, that overall takeaway, and then also how that differs from the traditional and even more widespread view of the relationship between the brain and the body? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you picked out the punchline of the book. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty much, uh, we're done here, right? No. <laughs> um, look, the, the, I guess to start the, the question I was trying to ask with the book, and I say ask rather than answer, cause it's, you know, it's still an open question is, you know, what, what is it that defines our limits? You know, if you're, if you're out there in a race or in some other context, pushing as hard as you can, pushing to the point where you can't go any faster, or any farther, what exactly is it that's preventing you from going that one percent faster? And I think anyone who's run a race uh, ponders that question. Um, and I guess I guess the answer I come to, uh, you know, after two hundred and twelve pages, is as you described that it's it really the the key, the master switch, or at least a theory that I find compelling is that the the the, the master switch is perception of effort. But that's definitely not what you know I grew up thinking, or right. or what I think most of us still intuit. Um, the, you know, when we think about the limits of endurance, we tend to think about things like VO2 max or lactate threshold or, you know, or on a more, or on a more sort of a less scientific level, we think about like, oh, my legs are burning or I, I'm, breathe, I'm panting as hard as I can. That, that I, I can't breathe any harder. I have to slow down. Um, and the, the way I think of it, that's kind of a 20th, the 20th century view of the, the body as a machine that we if we can understand all the parts how how hard can the heart beat how much can we breathe how much lactate or lactic acid as we used to call it uh can can the muscles tolerate how hot can the engine burn if you measure all those things and and put them all together we should be able to figure out exactly what our limits are except that in practice uh you know we know intuitively but also it's it's a sort of scientific fact that we you you could do as many lab tests as you want on the people lined up at the start of the Olympic marathon, but we scientists would not be able to tell you who's going to win the race on the basis of those lab tests. We just don't know. So there's this kind of there's always been this kind of gap or unknown in what defines our limits, what defines our abilities. And so over the last ten or twenty years, there's been a ton of of research saying, hey, you know, the body, the, the brain is part of the body. The brain is not this add-on that we can stick on at the end. It's part of the body. So, and our understanding of limits has to include the brain. And and the, as as you said, I think the conclusion that I I end up coming to, although I definitely don't want to give the impression that we have the final answers and we understand everything, is that it is that really your subjective sense of effort is the thing that really integrates all these factors. It integrates. The physical stuff it integrates how hard you're breathing it integrates how hot you are but it also integrates how you slept last night and and how confident you are and how, what your motivation is like and so ultimately that's the master regulator that determines when 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 am i going to reach my limits well when it feels harder than i can tolerate or sustain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely and you know one of the things I, I really enjoyed about the book and about you know reading about um reading each chapter is the style with which you you wrote the book 
um, you know, where you, you share, you would tend to share a lot of stories or start off each chapter with a story and then go back and kind of fall back on, you know, some empirical evidence and, and some academic research that's, that explained, well, here's why this story is interesting. Here's some takeaways we can add to that story. So you kind of help put a face to a lot of the more academic or, or, or drier findings that we've had recently. Um, now, you know, you mentioned just, just a moment ago about the, the 20th century, you know, model of, of running, about how it's a bit viewed as a bit more mechanical. And if we can understand VO2 max and, and quantify lactic threshold, et cetera, then we can start to quantify who would win the race. But, it, you know, th- this book kind of takes down that argument. And you, you start with a story about yourself as a runner, um, as a 1,500-meter runner. Um, so can you tell us that story uh, about running your 1,500 and kind of how you um, – that may have drawn some – or been an inspiration for the, the book itself and, and the research that you've done since? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'll, so I'll tell you this – before I even tell you the story, I'll tell you the story behind the story, which is that I, I was in the process of writing the book, and I was giving some – you know, a few talks to local, like, cycling clubs and running clubs, and – I was facing that problem of like I've got a ton of research, but if I just go up and say like, and another study said, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, even the most interested person is gonna you know you can't have two hundred pages of 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 just like a literature review of a bunch of studies, yeah. and so I was like, how do I make this interesting to people? And then and then the sort of second question to myself was like, why am I so interested in it? Why have I spent like eight, nine, ten years digging in this? Because the, the you know like. Sports are interesting, but come on, like what what is it that's 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 kind of made me turn 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 this into such a sort of like Moby Dick kind of quest for me? And and that's when I got thinking, I was like, when did I get interested in this topic? And I ended up sort of tracing the route back that to, to a race I ran when I was in college that I think sort of shaped my whole uh understanding or experience of limits and that ended up leaving these questions that I ended up wanting to pursue. So that to, to sort of, it's a long story. I'll, I'll, I'll make, it won't be short, but I'll give you the medium, medium version of the story. In college, I wanted to run my, my, my serious goal was to run a sub four fifteen so sub four minute 1500. So not a, not a sub four mile, but I just wanted to get sub four for 1500, which is about 17 seconds shorter than a mile. And, uh, and I, by the time I got to third year, I was at a serious plateau. I had run, uh, 401 or 402 for four straight years so you know dating dating back to high school and and so in, in terms of this idea of the body as a, a mechanical sort of system i really had the sense that i was bumping up against the limits of what my body could do because i'd been training hard for four years i had a couple different coaches different styles of training and i kept running 401 or 402 uh so i thought and, and you know when once you run 401 you're sure you can run 359 right like i, I wanted to go sub four but I didn't think, suspect that there would be much more in the tank beyond that. And and the race that where it ended up happening was a totally meaningless race. Uh, it was an indoor race, 200-meter track, slow track, no competition. Um, but basically, I, I, you know, I was go- going for it. I, I wanted to break four minutes, and I went out, and at the 200-meter mark, the, time, the, the timekeeper called out my split, and he was like 27 seconds. Which is, you know, four minutes is thirty-two seconds per per two hundred meters. So, you know, five seconds over two hundred meters is a is a is a world of difference. That's way, way, way off. Mm-hmm. And so I had this, you know, this moment of panic, like, oh, you idiot, what are you doing? You, you know, you're gonna you're gonna die. Uh, so I tried to sort of ease up and and uh, relax a little bit. I came through the the next lap, and the timekeeper called out fifty-seven seconds, which is you know <laughs> a little more reasonable, but it's still way, 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 way too fast. Still but seven the thing seconds was, I, faster for a quarter. Yeah, way fast. 
Yeah, yeah, it's still tr- you know trouble with a capital T. <laughs> uh, but but I had but by this point I was kind of like actually like I feel pretty good, right? Like it's 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 not it doesn't feel like a 57 and and i came through the third lap it was uh, 127 and and at the, by this point i was like man i just i feel like a million bucks i can't believe how fast these splits are i'm just feeling good and at that and you know you memorize the splits in your head right so i, I had you know 32 64 136 and so on I, I i had no idea what to do with the 127 or what was next and and, and i just decided you know i'm having a great day like don't even listen to the splits just go for it push your head down and and run uh, which is what I did, and I ended up running 352.4, oh. which which was an you know a nine second personal best after four years of running basically the same times, and uh, it, you know, so to 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 cut to the punchline, I, I was I was celebrating with a friend and I, you know with my teammates after the race, and one of my teammates had taken my splits for me so that I could put them in my log and you know analyze them for months and so on, and uh, when I was like, yeah, holy crap, I went out fast, and he was like, eh, you know. 30 31 something like that it's like what so the, the timekeeper was giving me the wrong splits um he was about three seconds off whether he started his watch later or, or or what i i don't know exactly what or why well you know why that happened but he basically tricked me into thinking that i was having an amazing race i was like i feel good and yet i'm going fast and and that somehow uncorked something in me and and i should say like I've told this story a few times and people are, are like, come on, there's more to it than that. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure my training must have been going well. Something must have gone right. But if you look through my training log, which I've done many times, there's no like, oh, now I'm in shape. It was just like, you know, I thought I'd run 359, but I ran 352. And then the, 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 the postscript is also interesting, which is that, first of all, I never I never had trouble breaking four minutes again, at least when I was, you know, fit and, and in shape. Uh, and in my next race, my next 1500, I ran 349. And in the one after that, I ran 344. Um, so there was this sort of like something happened. Now, obviously the physical stuff was obviously important too, but, but the experience of a nine second personal best and then, and then a three second and then a five second personal best was like clearly before that breakthrough, something, you know, there was more in the tank that I was not able to access and I was running race after race and it kept running f- four minutes. And so after that, I guess it, whenever I finished a race, I couldn't cross the line and say, whew, that was a tough race. I've, you know, that's what my body was capable of. There was always the unanswered question for me of like, was there more in the tank? Because there was that one time. And if so, how do I know? How do I access it? What, you know, and I think that's, ultimately that's essentially the question that the book tries to tackle is there more in the tank and, and if so how do i access it how do i know uh, um so i think really that race in an end you know that race was 1996 but it ended up being it was the seed from which the the book grew mm-hmm. yeah that's a profound difference between 344 and 401 um that's literally literally your new self was beating your old self by 100 meters at that point uh, yeah, and so you know, you can if it had just been 352, you can sort of say, well, Alex was probably in 357, 356 shape, so he was underperforming by a few seconds consistently, and then he finally hit one out of the park where he overperformed by a few seconds. But it's like, no, there was a whole different, you know, like that's that's just a different stratosphere, uh, you know, 344 to 401 in, in three races, and so clearly it wasn't just like a you know, the, the, the statistical noise, like some days are good days or some days are bad days. I, I, I became a different runner. 
Okay, so so with that in mind, I want to digress just a minute <laughs> because because it just seems to segue kind of nicely into talking about like Breaking Two and then now the one fifty nine fifty nine project I think they're calling it, uh, but with Ineos. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about your your impression of Elio Kipchoge trying to get under uh, two hours and and do you think that as folks said around the Breaking Two project that that would um, that would convince people that it was possible and would just begin this cascade of sub two performances. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. So, you know, just, just to, uh, you know, for listeners to make sure they're, they're up to speed, 2017, Nike ran this breaking two project. The world record at the time was just under 203. Kipchoge, under artificial conditions, so with, with pacemakers, it's not a legal, not a record uh, qual- uh, eligible race, ran two flat. Two zero zero twenty five, so two hours twenty five seconds, uh, and and you know, and I spent like six months covering this race for Runners World, so it was it, you know, there there was a sense in which, um, you know, I was spending so much time. I, I I thought I had thought this all through, but then when I watched him there run this race of two hours zero minutes and twenty five seconds, I had this overwhelming feeling at the finish that it's like that does change everything. That it that that it's like. I could. I never imagined I would see someone run, and I. And even though I knew on a rational level, he had he had six pacemakers for the whole race, running the you know running right in front of him. Like of course that's why he's able to run so fast. And he had the new Vaporfly shoes, you know. Like I, I knew that on a rational level, but I even despite that, I still felt this still changes everything. I, this still will 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 make people more willing to go out fast. They'll be more willing to believe that they can run at least two hundred two, two maybe even two hundred one. It's it's going to change things. So I that you know that was in May. I, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times the week before the that year's Berlin Marathon in in September, s- predicting that Kipchoge would run two hundred one or two hundred two. That 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 there was something about the act of having done it even under artificial conditions that would enable him to make a quantum leap in the marathon. Now, Berlin that year ended up being really rainy. He ran a great race, but nowhere near 202. So he went to London the next spring. He ran, again, great race, but it was really hot, the hottest London marathon ever. So great race, but no great breakthrough. Finally, in Berlin this past fall, so of 2018, he went out and ran 201.39. That's, you know, not to compare myself to Elie Kipchoge, but that was his, like, 352-1500 moment, yeah, yeah. right? Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> it was the biggest I- improvement in the world record in, the, in more than half a century. And so, there's a lot of things, like, you know, we, we could probably spend five hours deconstructing what what goes into Elliot Kipchoge, um, uh, you know, and how much is he, how much aid is he getting from the Vaporfly shoes? You know, how much, is he really just a 203 guy or 204 guy who's running in an era of the greatest shoes? Uh, what, what other factors are there? I believe part of it is exactly what we were just discussing. I believe part of it is stems from that experience in the breaking two project. I I don't, I don't think, I mean, who knows? I just, my, my gut feeling, all I can say is, is that, um, the having sort of shown himself that he could run right on the edge of two hours changed his and others perceptions and and led to, for instance, his, his 201. And then in, in, at London this spring, he a couple other guys running 202 
which is uh, you know a big breakthrough. So he's he is starting to bring some other people because that's the question: is it is it transferable? If one person shows it's right. possible, do other people do it? And it, right. so far, he's been head and shoulders above everyone else. But now there's a couple other guys starting to show up wearing Vaporfly shoes. To be fair, um, so in terms of what's next, I'll, I'll, I'll confess on the on the the, the Ineos project. I, I don't know much about it. I'm not. I don't have any inside information. My first reaction was to be a little bit disappointed. Uh, what I would have us liked too. him to us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I would have liked him to do, to be honest, is not go back to Berlin, but actually to, or at least I, there's lots of things. But compared to this, I would have preferred an Ineos project that was going to be done under record eligible conditions, because I think you could get a lot of the benefit. You could get I don't know 75 percent of the edge. And do it in a record-eligible way. People might still grouse about it. Let's say you did it on a Formula One track, and you had pacemakers and everything, but they didn't go all the way and they didn't sub in and out. And you did all these other things like having a launch window where you, you go when the weather is best. And you know you do everything that you're allowed to do within the rules, and you don't do anything that you're not allowed to do within the rules. And to me, if he did that and, and then set a, a, a legal world record and ran... I don't know, two hours, zero minutes and 59 seconds uh, instead of 159.59. I kind of feel like that would be that that, I, that would be a, a greater legacy for me. But on reflection, I can see his point, too, that he's run 201. He's like he's he's off the charts. So running another world record, meh, it, it, what, what's his marginal gain? He becomes 2% more legendary. Whereas if he does the 159.59, maybe there's some psychological thing of showing people that it can be done, both either for him or for the next generation of runners. And maybe in 50 years when people talk about the history of running, maybe he gets a, a more prominent, like, he's the guy who ran 159 under non-record eligible conditions. I, I, don't, I don't know how, how history will, will look back at these sorts of attempts. And he may be right that that posterity will care more about the number than about the conditions. Um but anyway, sorry, I'm rambling on a little bit, but that's that's my uh, that's my gut take on the on the one fifty nine fifty nine. No, I appreciate it. We brought you here to ramble on, so so, so thanks <laughs> for that. Uh, you know, you you've talked a little bit about your transition from kind of that twentieth century view to the twenty first century view, and how you know your race in the fifteen hundred meters, or not race, but races and racing in the fifteen hundred meters, uh, you know, affected your your transition to your your current mindset, as well as being a spectator of the Breaking Two project and. Um, you're, you know, being a fan of Ilya Kipchoge has kind of helped you in that transition, kind of, you know, added a bit more um, evidence in terms of, you know, what actually, you know, affects our limits. Now, in the book, you define endurance as the, the struggle to, to continue against a mounting desire to stop. Um, so, so why define it that way? And were there any other working definitions that you had, you know, along the way or that, you know, you kind of stuck to in your long process of, of writing this book? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ways to define endurance. In fact, you know, one of the experiences I had is I went to a conference in Australia while I was reporting on the book, and it was the conference was on the future of fatigue, and they had one whole session on trying to define the word fatigue. And I was like, <laughs> "Come on, these are like the smartest guys in the world studying fatigue," and they're like, "What? Is, what does it actually mean?" Yeah. And and you know, and you can come up with all these definitions. It's like, is it is it the inability to maintain? Uh, a, a, a sustained level of output, a desired level of output, or is it the gradual decrease in your level of output? Well, the you know the effort, the the input or the effort remains the same. You, I mean, you can come up with a, a lot of definitions that are 
rational within a given context, and most of them also then become nonsensical outside that specific context. Or, context, or you can find uh, examples where it doesn't really make sense. Like, what is fatigue for a weightlifter compared to, uh, you know, even in the context of endurance, what is fatigue for someone doing ten, you know, ten reps or something of, of anyway. All we should say, these things are, are harder, to, harder to define than, than, than they seem. And so my definition of endurance is actually a bit of a cheat. It's, it's Samuel Marcora's definition of effort. So effort is the struggle to continue. What, is it, what does it mean to put out effort? What does it mean to, to, to feel a high sense of effort? Well, to him, it's the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And, that, and there is some precedent for that in, in the literature. And when I read that, it's like I understand why that's defined as effort in his in his scientific context. But in a more colloquial way, to me, that's what endurance is. Endurance is something that is characterized by a sustained struggle. So not just it's like you know if you punch me in the face that that's unpleasant and it hurts, but it doesn't require any uh, sort of resolution on my part to keep to to, keep, to endure it. There, there's no struggle. It's just like that really hurt. There has to be time elapsing and and you have to be doing something that you don't it's not like there's no endurance required to eat six places at, well okay in some sense there's no endurance required to eat six plates of ice cream it's like it's pleasurable the whole way okay at a certain <laughs> point the six plate probably requires some endurance but but you know what i mean like it has to, it, there has to be you have to be overcoming your your natural urge so anyway that's uh, that, that's a kind of hand-waving answer but but to me that that not so much in a scientific way but in a intuitive way felt like what we're talking about when we talk about endurance because i think one of the one of the things when you when you shift to this sort of brain centered view of endurance that it's all about effort it becomes a much more general concept and so we have these metaphorical uses or 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 you know analogical ways of talking about endurance whether it's you know dealing with an annoying person at a dinner party or whatever and uh, or or studying for an exam or whatever but when you put endurance in the context of, uh, you know, perception of effort, all of a sudden, those aren't just similar things. They're kind of the same. They're they're fundamentally the same. It's it's your 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 overcoming a natural instinct or something that you, you know your all your instincts are trying to make you do one thing, and you're struggling to do something else. And so, I, I thought it was sort of interesting and useful to to, to see that fundamentally. Uh, endurance in a uh, you know academic or business or social context has some some overlap or some similarities to endurance in a in a sports context and I think many of us who are endurance athletes see you know anyone who's run 50 miles a week or whatever probably is a little better able to deal with an uncomfortable seat on an airplane or something like that 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 it, it sucks but you understand that you can deal with discomfort that you can you can continue again despite your mounting desire to stop you can you can just keep keep going yeah I, I I like that definition uh for one of the reasons you just mentioned that that it's transferability into so many different things um and so I guess if we could get back to to talking more specifically about some of the content of the book here there there was a couple of things that 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 I was interested in that that stood out to me in the book that I definitely wanted to talk about um and Patrick mentioned a little while ago sort of the style in which you wrote the book um and and I kind of wanted to to talk a little bit about that part two of the book um 
is called Limits. Um, and so in part one, you kind of lay out the gist of the book and the overall argument, and you mentioned studies and all that sort of thing there. But but part two, it's it's interesting to me because it feels like either like a brick-by-brick brick building of the argument or a brick-by-brick brick dismantling of the old way of thinking, you know, depending on, on your lens there. Um, and so it's almost like the, the first chapter in part two, it's about pain, and it's about how your brain helps you to, to endure pain, right? And then I could almost sort of hear somebody saying, oh, okay, well, yeah, your brain helps you to, to, to tolerate pain, but you can still only do what your muscles allow you to do. You can still only do what you're strong enough to do. Well, so then there's a chapter about muscles. Okay, well, fine. So, so maybe your brain mitigates what your muscles are able to do, um, but, uh, but you can only do it if you have oxygen. Um, and so you have a chapter about oxygen. <laughs> and then, well, okay, fine, but if it's hot, you can't do it. Well, then you have one about heat. Uh, well, okay, but if you're dehydrated, well, then you have one about thirst. Well, then you have one about fuel. Um, and so I, I liked how that, that went. And, and definitely by the end, you get the impression that, um, you get the impression that, that, that okay, there, there's a lot more to this argument than just being tough and, and pushing your way through pain. Um, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad it worked out the way, the, the, the way <laughs> I was hoping it, because that, that is ba- ba- basically it. And I, I will say, though, that... Um, when I started working on the book, which is quite a long time ago, I I thought it would be a much more straightforward, like your limits are in your head kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in talking to people over the course of you know a, a number of years, I I, I sort of I re, you know because there's a lot of pushback to that idea, and some of it I think is just was was just kind of um, you know resistance to to new ideas, but. And and I you know I dismissed that, but some of it had you know there there are important points about understanding that you know there are times when you know you you may be reaching a limit you, or 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 your you know, where your constraints really are dictated by or are really strongly in, informed by by one of these limits like hydration or or uh, fuel or whatever, and so. I thought, just, you know, exactly like you laid out. I thought let's just look at them one by one, and and to me. My hope, or my feeling, at the end of each chapter, and and I didn't necessarily know how each chapter was going to go when I started writing it. I was, I'd be like, okay, let's let's talk about oxygen. Let's find out what happens. What are the limits of oxygen when I'm panting in the, you know, in the at late in a race? Is that because I literally cannot, uh, get, you know, my muscles don't have enough oxygen or whatever? Am I am I starving of oxygen? And the answer tended to be that lack of oxygen really does play a role and it holds you back. But it's not that you're actually out of oxygen. And that, that seemed to be the theme in, in each one of these limits, that it's like, these things matter. All these things matter. No one can claim that you can just ignore uh, thirst or pain or uh, oxygen or heat, and, and it doesn't matter. You know, if you're mentally strong enough, it just doesn't matter. That, that's, a, that's a false extrapolation of this uh, brain-centered view. But when, it, when push comes to shove, the actual moment you give up is seldom dictated by like you're, you're actually frying your brain like on, like on, a, on a frying pan or whatever. No, it's, 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 it tends to be you're, you're always stopping a little bit early. So, so I felt like by going through those one step by step, like you said, we could acknowledge the complexity and, and just sort of address the, the questions that, that I that like you said I presume are popping up in people's minds and you know what about this and what about that mm-hmm. so anyway yeah that, that's that, that was that was kind of my hope exactly what exactly what you said right on very good very good um, one of the so the very first one of those is is about pain 
Um, and, and you mentioned this study in there that was from 2013 uh, with a bunch of athletes that were going to be doing the Trans-Europe race, which is a 2,700-mile foot race over the course of like nine weeks. Um, and they had 11 of the runners, and then they had a control group, and they had them dunk their fists into ice water. Um, and they had them keep their fists in like super icy cold water for three minutes at a time. Um, and the ultra runners, when they would pull their fists out, they would say, okay, we'll rank that from a, from a zero to 10. And they are, and they said six. And then in the control group, all of them quit after like a minute and a half, except for three of them, because it was like 11. <laughs> um, and so I, 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 I like that study for a wide variety of reasons, not the least of which is that I'm a runner. And it makes me feel tougher than not runners, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it also kind of made me think about, um, like training pain tolerance. Um, and, and so I guess, I guess it's kind of a chicken and egg question I'm about to ask. Do you suppose that those guys are, are and, and, and girls that were being tested as part of that 2013 study, do you think that they were wired to have better pain tolerance and that's the reason why they went into the Trans-Europe race? Or do you think that by training for the Trans-Europe race, they gain greater pain tolerance? Yeah, that that is the you, you've identified the key question, um, and and uh, needless to say, the question for which I don't have an ultimate answer. My uh, this probably says as much about my personality, but as anything. But my answer to these questions always is: I suspect it's a bit of both. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I intuitively I don't have much doubt that some people. I mean, I'm sure you can tell by the age of five or something that you know that some people are willing to put up with discomfort, and other people are just highly sensitive to it and and not and less able to tolerate it. So I, I'm sure that there are, there's a little bit of like reverse causation there where people who can, who, who are able to handle discomfort end up or, and whether they were born that way or whether it's environmental, you know, whether they, uh, you know, th there was a, a study a couple of years ago of a tr comparing like medal winning British athletes to like world-class finalists, but non-medal winning British athletes. And one of the differences they found is that all, virtually all the medal winners had some sort of traumatic experience when they were young. Mm. Um, not, not like, you know, not like a ghost jumped out at them, but, you know, some sort of adverse life event yeah. that, that, you know, whether it's, you know, parental issues or whatever. Um, and so there may be formative things that, that sort of put a chip on someone's shoulder and make them willing to suffer. Having said all that, I think there is some pretty good evidence that this is trainable and is partly something that gets better. Um, you know, one of the classic studies looking at pain tolerance in athletes uh, sampled pain tolerance in a bunch of elite swimmers at different points of the year, and you know they compared them to a, like na national team swimmers to you know club level swimmers. And one thing was that the national level swimmers had far higher pain tolerance, you know, so consistent with the study we were just talking about. But the other thing it found is that it increased through the training cycle. So by the time they got, they were peaking for their their major competition of the year, their pain tolerance was the highest uh, that it was of the year. And then, you know, a month later, when they were in the middle of their off season, it was the lowest that it was the entire year. Yep. So there's something that that ebbs and flows even in very, very experienced athletes. So it's not like you learn to tolerate pain once and then you've mastered it or you've, you know, you dull your nerve endings and, and uh, you, you know, you're suddenly not feeling pain anymore. Because the, the evidence does suggest that athletes and non-athletes feel pain to the same degree. It's not it's not a question that they just turn off their pain system. It's more about psychological techniques for coping with it for just being able to say okay it hurts but i'm going to keep going because that's i still want to keep going even though it hurts mm -hmm. i i am going to distract myself or i'm going to reframe the pain as, po as something positive it's 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 evidence that i'm successfully pushing my limits and having a good race or whatever the, the case may be but these things don't just 
stay forever. There's, I mean, there's also just a, a question of familiarity. I think that's some uh, often underappreciated. It's like if you're a runner, you're used to going to places of discomfort on a regular basis yeah. that non-runners or non-athletes, if they're lucky, may go through most of their life without experiencing anything as unpleasant as, <laughs> a, you know, a serious interval session. Yeah. Uh, and, and the more you do it, the more you're just like, oh yeah, this is just, this is called Tuesday. You know, this is, this is what it's like. Mm-hmm. Right on, right on. Um, I think it definitely kind of falls into that, uh, that, that transferability of, of your definition around endurance as well. I think it's interesting what you said about the, the traumatic experience that the British medalists had versus the, uh, the, the non-medalists, um, for sure. I mean, struggling against that, or struggling to continue against that mounting desire to stop. Um, I wanted to ask you about another kind of aspect of, of this that, that I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around. And it's, it's getting to be summer in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's hot. <laughs> and, and you talked about how um, you, can, you can trick the mind when it comes to heat as well. Um, two studies kind of stood out to, to that and me. One, you, you talked about how cyclists performed better in a sauna when there was a thermometer on the wall that told them it was 79 degrees rather than 89 degrees. Um, and, and the other one was about the Australian team um, drinking those slushies at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Um, and what was so fascinating about that is it said that, that when they drank the slushies, it lowered their core temperature such that when they actually then began competing, they could get to a higher core temperature and still perform than they could if they hadn't lowered it in the first place. Can you talk about yeah. that? Because that's I, I that that's the one that you know again, having been around heat a lot, that that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Y- yeah, this is a so. I mean, first of all, the deception one I think is is fascinating. That it just kind of goes to show that part of why we slow down in the heat is because we feel hot and we know we should, and and whether it's on a conscious or subconscious level. The slushy stuff is is much more complicated, and I, and I want to emphasize that. Um, it it's tricky to interpret this stuff. It's kind of hard to know what's what's exactly what's going on. So I don't want to overstate how certain we are about what's happening. But what I think the big message is when we think about heat, we we often either we think about the atmospheric temperature, like how 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 hot, what's the thermometer at say outside, or you know we think scientifically about core temperature. Well, you know, stick a thermometer up my butt and and that'll tell me how hot I am. And and I think what the evidence of the last few years has been saying more and more is that there's a lot of different ways that we're monitoring heat. There's there are thermal sensors that we didn't know about, uh, and so your skin temperature is important, and your skin temperature is different from your core temperature, and your brain temperature is important. And they've done some exper- you know experiments with animals like flushing cold fluid through the brain and showing that even if the rest of them is hot if you keep the brain cool then that's part that that allows you to keep going longer so i think with slushies it's really hard to figure out what's happening because or you know and you can think of like dumping a dumping water on your head when you're running that doesn't change your core temperature at all it's 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 totally irrelevant to your core temperature in some ways but it changes your perception of temperature changes your skin temperature now when you drink a slushy it turns out there are thermal sensors at along your esophagus, so you may be kind of cooling your brain as it goes past, or or at least some of those sensors. There's also thermal sensors in your stomach, so they've done some fascinating studies where, uh, you, you know, w- the, well, the, the, they've shown it in different ways. But one of the one of the things they've showed, you know, in some very hot climates, it, the thing to do on, on a hot afternoon is to drink a very hot cup of tea. Mm-hmm. 
which sounds like it makes no sense, right? But what seems to happen in some cases, if you drink a really hot cup of tea, the tea is in your stomach. It's not raising your core temperature because it's just one cup of tea. But you you have th- thermal sensors in your stomach. They're responding to that, feeling like it's hot, and so they're triggering you to sweat. And so the, the cooling effect of the sweat actually outweighs the heating effect of the hot drink. So you end up getting cooled down by drinking a hot cup of tea. And so when you get back to the, the slushies, there's various things that can go on with how hot you are. Is it changing your temperature? And also how hot do you feel? So one of the things that they found in at least one or two studies is depending on how much slushy you drank and how cold it was, you you might feel so good when you start your exercise in the heat that you actually start out too fast. Mm. You're like, I feel great. So you, you end up with a with a, a really hot early pace. And as a result, you do heat up, you, you start to approach your actual, you know, uh, thermal limits and you end up slowing down and you end up with a worse performance overall. So they found that too much slushy wasn't necessarily a good thing in, in certain contexts at least. So all of which is to say it's very hard to give a straight answer because you start to, you, you can imagine that depending on how long the race is and who you are and what else is going on and what you're wearing, the contributions of, of what your skin temperature is versus your core temperature versus these transient effects of having some slushy in your stomach uh, and triggering those things, it can all add up in different ways for different people. And I'm sure there's individual differences in, in what we respond to and what we're most sensitive to. So so the, the, you know, the net result is it's like it's really hard to give universal suggestions about whether a slushy is good or whether dumping water on your head is good it or or how how good how good it would be because there's so much dip you know there's so many it's it's tweak it's pulling so many levers at the same time that it's hard to know which lever was the the relevant one absolutely um now throughout the book you share you know like i said a lot of different stories that that highlight kind of the the importance of you know the, the mind on endurance and about how you know our perception of endurance is almost more important than um, kind of the me- mechanical definition of, of endurance itself. And one of the stories that I found particularly haunting was the story about the the young woman who was I couldn't bring it up. <laughs> who was I believe caught in a in, a, in an undertow and it was yeah. you know taken out to the ocean and actually had to tread water for I believe several hours with, with her child while holding her child you know above water. And then when help finally came, she was able to to essentially give the child to you know the help. And then she actually drowned herself like. It, and it, it's almost too coincidental to say that, oh, she just happened to run out of gas at that particular time. And it, it really kind of highlighted, you know, how much, you know, desperation it, you know, can almost play into endurance itself. So that was, I mean, one of my favorite stories from, from the book. And by favorite, I should say, the one that stuck, most stood perfect. with me the most. That, that story haunts me. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, were, were there any stories that, that you came across in doing your research that, that you found to be, you know, either your favorite or, or kind of the most telling in terms of if I have to tell people what my book is about, this story really kind of highlights and, and personifies what the thesis of the book is. Yeah. So f- definitely that story, you know, and it's, it's it, I, I should say like the, the balance between stories and research is always a, a tricky one, right? Cause mm-hmm. you can, you can, t- you can find a story that seems to tell you anything you want. So, um, so for, for that story, really, to me, it was it was about illustrating, not about proof. We don't know what happened that day or what the details right. were, but it, it just seemed to illustrate in a in a such a haunting way what happens in a much more mundane way 
over and over again in things like races where it's like you know you, you you reach the line just as you're just as you collapse you look at the number of people who collapse just when they reach the line or whatever um but that, that you know that one yeah, I, I could see your faces on the screen, and you both look like you, you know you, you just lost your puppy. And and I I, I totally understand it because uh, you know I I felt the same way. And I should say that that story I, I I got from David Epstein at Sports Illustrated. He he told that story in great detail, and it's a story you can I think find online, um, in 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 far greater detail. And it, it's a it's a it's a haunting one. Anyway, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll move on and say that the. the 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 thing that probably stuck out the most in my mind um, was actually the the section on free diving, mm-hmm. um, in a, probably in large part because it was so new and different to me. Like I, I was I I was I had a ton of fun getting into the endurance sports and stuff, but I, I've been thinking and living and breathing this stuff for twenty years, so it's not like there were huge surprises. I'll, are a lot of huge huge surprises along the way it was a gradual accretion of 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 knowledge but the free diving it was just like i should, you know it was in the chapter on oxygen and i was like well what you know how do i understand what the limits are how long we can last without oxygen i guess i should you know look into the literature on pe- people like free divers and and mountain climbers and stuff and so i read some books on free diving and it totally blew my mind <laughs> it was like I was like, what? I had no idea. I thought these were like urban legends. I had zero idea that the world record for breath holding, without any tricks, no like pre-breathing oxygen or anything like that, the world record for breath holding is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. <laughs> and and that was just totally outside my understanding or expectations. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you, you sort of read the stories about these guys and, you know, they can, as well as just holding their breath, they can dive down i think the record was like a for an unassisted dive was like 102 meters or so 335 feet or something like that and i I can't imagine like thinking of like the life and death death stakes of judging the limits of your endurance exactly right you know imagine holding your breath diving down 335 feet Mm -hmm. and then thinking okay now i've got to swim back up like i've got to kick i've got to use my energy and i've got to make it to the surface before i run out of air and uh, and actually, after I wrote the book, or after the book was published, after it was done, I had a chance to to uh, chat to uh, a guy named Jason uh, or Brand, Brandon Hendrickson, who's the American record holder for uh, for breath holding. His record is eight minutes and thirty five seconds, and kind of get a sense from him step by step of what it feels like to hold your breath for that long. And that was really fascinating because there's these things called involuntary breathing movements when you. What, it, just going back to the theme of like what feels like a limit versus what's a real limit. You know, what's an what's an orange light versus what's an actual red light. Involuntary breathing movements are the orange light that fe- that feel like a red light. When 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 you've been holding your breath for long enough, your muscle breathing muscles start to contract. Your uh, uh, they start to convulse, basically trying to force you to breathe. Your 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 body has concluded that this guy don't doesn't know what he's doing. He's an idiot. We need to force a breath because for some reason he's not breathing. And I'm, you know, I, I've never held my breath for long enough to get anywhere close to that point. But if I did, that would be the end for me. Like when my diaphragm is contracting, I breathe. Free divers may have as many as like a hundred of these convulsions during a single free dive or a single uh, breath hold. So they're learning to, they, they've learned to just keep their mouth shut, basically, essentially, and ignore what seems like the end of the the breath hold or the dive. And so, for Brandon Hendrickson. 
said his involuntary breathing movements started somewhere between four and five minutes in his record-setting breath hold. So he reached what seems like the end of the road between four and five minutes, but he held on till eight and a half minutes. And so to me, that's kind of such a, a an illustration of how what's the safety margin? Where How much extra do we have? Now, you can't extrapolate and say, well, if he went from four minutes to eight minutes, that means marathoners can really run a one-hour marathon if they if they push it. It's it's not you know it, it, that's not how it works, but it gives some sense of of I, I think a really uh, a sort of quantitative sense of what what are we holding back or what what where are the safety margins set in some context? So that anyway, all of which, a long story to say that uh, reading about those free dives was the part that was like whoa my eyes were popping out of my head. So. Yeah, and, and just kind of following up on that, I mean, feels like versus an actual limit, like a real limit. So if he started getting those around four or five minutes, what made him stop at eight and a half minutes? Like, like, That's, like how did yeah. he know to stop then? That is an excellent question. So you can watch the, that, that his breath hold is on, on, on the, there's a video of it, and you can, so you can actually see what happens. And basically, Hit the end of his breath hold was his coach tapping him on the shoulder at eight and a half minutes, which is what they'd previously agreed was a safe limit. And nothing happens for five seconds. And his coach is like, tap, tap, tap. And he, because he's holding the breath with his face underwater, because mm-hmm. that, that helps. And then, uh, then he remembers and he comes up. So in that, in that particular context, there isn't a red light. Wow. The red light is you die. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he, you've you've blown past the only warning signal you're going to get, and that's why one of the reasons free diving is so dangerous. Uh, at a certain point, yeah, like, and and so they've done. There's there's actually a lot of really fascinating physiology uh, or some experiments in, or in the last few years on free divers. A, a lot of which has come out even since my book came out. Um, and what they find is that, uh, so well trained free divers can actually hold their breath until they they literally do run out of oxygen that they the, 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 and that so they'll pass i guess the, the warning light is they'll pass out they'll black out they basically the equivalent of their body their brain and body goes into standby mode to, to save the last little bit of oxygen and if that happens when you're underwater that's bad news mm. um so uh and and then there's there's you know all these nuances where if you're if you do pre-breathe oxygen, so you 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 take pure oxygen and pre-breathe it for a while before you hold your breath, that changes things because then you've got a bunch of extra oxygen. So then, what the limiting factor is the size of your lungs, and what what actually stops you is your lungs collapse because <laughs> you've still got oxygen, but uh, while you're holding your breath, the the, the you know the, what's in your lungs is gradually being used, and not not all of it's coming back to your lungs. So you can it's it's actually lung size that limits you if you're uh, if you pre-breathe oxygen, but if it's yeah, if if you're uh, if you don't pre-breathe oxygen, just a regular dive, it's just like yeah, eventually you run out of oxygen and you pass out. You don't you don't feel anything different. So that's why these breath holds, they know you know you, you hold eight minutes and then you think I can do eight fifteen. You hold eight fifteen and then you think I can do eight thirty. You have to incrementally figure out what you can do without killing yourself, and then the coach is there tapping you on the shoulder to tell you to come out uh, because. At that point, you're not feeling anything except agony, but you've been feeling agony for the last five minutes, so you don't know anything different. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I, should, I should just I should also say, a lot of the stuff I wrote about, it's like, man, I'd love to go climb a mountain like that. 
have zero desire <laughs> to, to try free diving or hold breath holding because that, that's just like all pain and no reward right. as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'll take your word for it on the free diving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. I'll, I'll, I'll watch the YouTube video and I will be satisfied as far as the breath holding record. Yeah, very yeah. good, very good. All right, so last thing I want to ask you about, the the, the book ends um, with you running a marathon um, and and um, it was your first marathon. Was it your only marathon? <laughs> it is to to date to this date Today. it's my only marathon was it was it the toronto waterfront marathon was that what you did no i actually did ottawa which is the other big one okay. in canada okay very good um and you you changed a lot of things or you, you you did a lot of things in your training for that marathon um based on the research that you had done can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you did and and what it was like to actually apply these things as alex the athlete as opposed to alex the journalist yeah, and, and you know, and I, I should say that ultimately, uh, you know, doing a n equals one experiment like this of just trying a bunch of stuff doesn't really tell us anything about what's working or not. I have no idea how I would have run without that stuff. So t- to me, this was a sort of experiential uh, experience of just uh, let's see how it feels. Let you know if I'm going to write about all this stuff, I you know I'm going to judge whether it works based on the scientific research. But whether it works isn't the only question. It's like, how does it feel? Is this something I would do? Is this something I would recommend? So that that was kind of the motivation. The, the main thing I did there, the the, the reason for the, the experiment was was doing something called brain endurance training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the the idea there is basically, look, to, to, to run a marathon to, or to run any endurance race it requires physical endurance, but also mental endurance. You, you're, you're constantly having to overcome your desire to your, your entirely rational desire to slow down uh, and to ease up. And you're having to constantly sort of force yourself to keep your finger in the flame. And, and that, that's a, that mental effort uh, leads to mental fatigue. And that's one of the things that, that results in pace slowing down. So the idea was if you can increase your physical endurance by doing physically fatiguing tasks over and over again, in other words, training, the same should apply to mental endurance. You sh- if you do mentally fatiguing tasks, over and over again on a day, you know, five days a week, say, um, you should be able to enhance your mental endurance. And there's been fairly preliminary but promising studies suggesting that this actually works, that you can actually enhance your endurance by sitting in front of a computer as, you know, shapes or, or numbers or letters flash on the screen. So I tried that for 12 weeks, um, doing it five days a week, worked up to, I think my longest session was 80 minutes. Oof. From the sort of experiential side, I can say it sucked. I, you know, I, I I did not want to uh, to do that ever again. It was it was really really challenging. Um, and so that was, I guess, five years ago or so. Since then, they've been kind of refining this idea, and 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 there's more uh, practical ways of doing brain training rather than just sitting in front of the computer. But, uh, you know, that, that, that was the main thing I wanted to try. But I also wanted, I, I also wanted to try some other things, the other ways of uh, uh, twisting that effort dial of, of, of manipulating effort. So, for example, I was doing rinse and spit with carbohydrates. This is an idea that uh, if you take a sports drink, you put it in your mouth. A lot of the benefit, some of the benefit at least, is just the perception that you've got fuel on the way. It doesn't even matter whether you're swallowing it. So I was rinsing and spitting sports drink, and I instructed a bunch of friends and, and family to stand at various places around the course uh, 
and try and make me smile as I went by. Because mm-hmm. there is there's there is some preliminary evidence that your perception of effort kind of depends a lot on what's on your face. That mm-hmm. you know, if I if I it's like if I'm feeling happy, I'll smile. But if I smile, I'm more likely to feel happy. And and happiness is connected in the brain to the sense of ease, uh, and and uh, and this idea that. Uh, it, you know, it'll just make things feel a little easier if I'm smiling. Now, since then, there's been a lot more research and there's been a lot of talk about Elliot Kipchoge smiling and studies showing that smiling makes you better. But this, back then, this was just an, an early, I, you know, early version of that, trying to get people to make me smile at me with, by holding up jokes and things like that yeah. as, I, as I went around the course. So all of that, you know, put all that stuff together and, you know, let's, to, to bring it back to, to real life and reality, harsh reality, I, I still hit the wall after about 20 miles and <laughs> suffered through that <laughs> those last six miles. So um, who knows? Maybe I would have suffered worse without all those those things. But uh, but it's it, it, there's no magic, right? Like you, you can you can play all the tricks you want, but uh, the marathon's still a long way. Did um since it didn't go as well as you had hoped, did that give you any additional insight or just some really harsh personal insight into the the difference between real limits and what feels like limits? Yeah, for sure. I mean, let, let me pull out a, a list of excuses here first, just to uh, <laughs> put things in context. Uh, you know, I, I was a miler at, and a relatively low di- lo, low mileage miler, so a middle distance runner. I, you know, I'm used to suffering for four minutes, and I, I, you know, towards the end of my serious career, I tried to move up to the five k, which is you know, we're talking fourteen minutes or whatever. Um, you know, more more than two hours is a long way. <laughs> And 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 I have also have a fairly bouncy stride. So to my interpretation, and of course, it's always you know who, who knows. But my my personal interpretation is basically my legs just my quads just got pounded. Mm-hmm. I, I I so by the time and I, I had noticed this whenever I run whenever I run half marathons, what I find is that by, after about the ten mile mark, I'm still feeling pretty good, but my quads just start to feel dead 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 so it's at that point i don't think it's like i'm running out of glycogen or anything like that this is just to me pure mechanical uh you know pounding that you know muscle damage that will leave me unable to walk tomorrow and for me it kicks in pretty early relative to most people like said you know 10 12 miles so i'm and at least at half marathon pace in the marathon you're going a little slower so there's the forces are a little lower so i got to I would say I got to 17 or 18 miles. I I was still feeling good, but I could feel my quads starting to starting to just get that dead feeling and I thought I don't think I'm going to make it to the finish before they 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 really uh start hurting me. And at 20 miles, I was still on pace for what I wanted to run, but at 20 miles I was like, "Oh, now the quads are starting." And around 22 mi- by around 22 miles, it was just absolute agony every step it was like someone was jabbing daggers into my quads with every step and so you know i, I was doing this i was doing this for an article uh, but you know under the guidance of samuel marcora this researcher who's come up with all these a lot of the ideas on uh the brain's role in training and i emailed him and i was like so so what happened i you know i hit the wall what <laughs> where's my brain training now it felt to me like that was a pretty physical limit and he and, and his his you know his reply was like yeah, of course there's physical limits. Like if you break your ankle, it's not all in your head. And you didn't break your ankle, but you had severe muscle damage and that held you back. Now, if a lion jumped out of the course at 24 miles, would I have been able to run faster? Probably. But it was just the the 
the the pain was different than 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 just effort. It was it was pain, and and that made it very hard for me to uh, to to run through it. Maybe not impossible, but but I couldn't have sustained a fast pace for another five miles, even with a lion behind me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the the physical matters too, and that was a lesson learned with a lot of pain. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Now, one question we always ask uh, everyone: uh, What's your favorite workout? Training. Oh, that, ha. Whew, that's a good question. I guess in pure interval workouts, the one I always liked was thousand meter reps. Yes. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's it's you know, my, it's it's right in that sweet spot where you can go fast, but it, it it's still a long one. It, you know, it's like that that is just a, a, a when you're fit, you you know you know if you can nail a thousand meter workout, you know you're fit. Uh, and whether it's five by thousand or eight by thousand, or depending on where you're at and where you're at and what you're training for, I, I will also give a shout out to long progression runs. Um, that's something I I I only started doing later in my career with when I started training with Matt Centrowitz's group, and we would do these runs along the canal where it was like, okay, we're gonna go out, out and back, you know, let's say 16 miles, and we're gonna get 10 seconds faster every mile, mm-hmm. and we're gonna start at seven minute mile pace. Uh, this was back when I was at my fittest, and you know, you, you get down and at a certain point, you get it's like, okay, we can't get any faster. It's like, okay, we'll sustain that. And sometimes you, you you'd get down, you know, to a pretty quick, well, you know, faster than marathon pace. Sometimes you you know, it depends on the. But it, to me, those workouts felt like just I'd finish those, and they gave me a ton of like you were racing right from the start. Uh, and they weren't just totally subjective that, you know, the, the sort of anal numbers guy in me liked the, okay, every mile, we're just going to dial it down a bit. They were really good for pace judgment because you have to learn to feel the difference between tens of, of, a, of, you know, 10 seconds per mile, which I wasn't very good at, you know? I, I, so when I say the theory was you get 10 seconds faster per mile, I didn't, I didn't always execute that, but it was like trying to feel the difference in very subtle paces. So anyway, I really liked those workouts. I felt like they gave me a lot in terms of endurance and 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 they were also a kind of fundamental challenge. Well, I was going to say it's it's it seems appropriate that the workouts that you chose as your favorite workouts are the ones that you felt like benefited you physically and benefited you mentally. Um, and that was even before, of course, that you wrote the book. Um, so very good. Um, well, Alex, we appreciate you being with us. Very last question: What's next for you, both as a runner and as an author? What can we uh, look forward to from you? Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had a, a better answer to that. For, as a runner, I, I will say I, uh, probably the the next big goal. My big goal race for the fall is actually a sort of a three person orienteering adventure race. Oh, Takes cool. typically three to five hours. It's through the woods. I, I, I'm really enjoying doing some of that kind of trail racing and less conventional stuff. You might say it's uh, running away from the need to see how much slower I'm getting each year uh, on, <laughs> I, on, you know, certified I, courses. I understand that better than, than, than you might think. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, you might say that and you'd be right. Mm. Um, and, uh, what's next as a writer is, is, is a, uh, so I've given myself a hard deadline of December, 2018 to figure out what I want to do next. Unfortunately, we're talking here in 2019. <laughs> I still haven't figured it out. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big, you know, I spent you know eight or nine years on the last book, and I think that's probably spooked me a little bit. Of like, man, I got to find something I really, really care about, which is a bad attitude. I'm trying to get out of it, but uh, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't, I don't, I don't. At this point, at least, I don't think like Endure Two: Revenge of the Endurance is 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 <laughs> is, is necessarily in, you know the right thing to do because I'm not sure 
even in five years, whether the science will have changed significantly from from where I'm at now. So I, I'm basically, what's next for me is I'm going to keep focus on magazine journalism for a little while, hopefully have a chance to do some long form pieces that introduce me to a bunch of different topics and see if one of them clicks as something I really want to go deep on. Right on, right on. Very cool, very cool. Well, if you do write Endure 2, or anything else for that matter, I can I can guarantee you that, that Patrick and I will, will, will buy it and we'll read it and we'll enjoy it and we'll probably talk about it a great deal on this podcast. So, Alex Hutchinson, Fantastic. thanks for joining us. Uh, AlexHutchinson.net, Facebook.com slash SweatScience, and of course on Twitter, at SweatScience. You, uh, you have a monthly email now too, don't you? I do. Monthly is maybe a little bit optimistic. It's supposed to be monthly, but I sometimes forget. Or, but basically, and it's not like a fancy email. It's basically just here's what here's the articles I've written and what I've been up to in the last month. So uh, yeah, you can sign up from the bottom of any one of my articles on outside. Right on, right on. Very cool. Well, we really, really appreciate your being with us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast, and we got a lot out of it. And this would give us enough to talk about for at least another hundred episodes, right? <laughs> let's do it <laughs> right on right on thanks uh, guys and, and happy 100th that's a, that's a great milestone thanks a lot Alex we appreciate it and that'll do it for another edition of the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL coaching and performance and blue pineapple travel once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.